0: in 2nd Corinthians chapter number 12 that he what went up into the third heavens and now people talk about going up into heaven and that is the temporary heaven we have right now and then of course we saw in Revelation 21 after the uh, uh, final judgment when sin and death is removed from this world it says that heaven comes down and takes place on this earth where we live forever and ever. And I just want to say, isn't it neat that God would come down to a new earth and it fits perfectly uh, with his original plan. Uh, If you remember when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, did God bring them to him or did he come and see them? Remember, he he walked with Adam and Eve on this earth uh, in the garden. And it's a picture of God's ultimate plan. Not to take us up and live in a realm made for God, but rather he comes down to live in a realm he made for us. And this is Revelation 21.3 that says God himself will be with them. Here's a great way to think of it. Just as Jesus is God incarnate, so the new earth will be heaven incarnate. If that makes sense, that's that's a great way. Just as Jesus is God incarnate, so the new earth will be heaven incarnate. So simply put, although the present heaven is up there, the future heaven will be down here. And if we fail to see that distinction, uh, we're unable to envision what our eternal lives will look like. So I'm going to give you a little um, illustration that sort of helped me work through this. Uh, this past weekend, uh, Alicia and I uh, went to St. Louis uh, to visit some friends up there. And, and, uh, I, have you ever been to the Jacksonville Airport? It's, it's kind of small, isn't it? Which, it's kind of surprising. I mean, with the population growth in northeast Florida, you would think it'd be a little larger, but, but it's actually one of the smallest airports I've ever been to, and it's really hard to get a direct flight anywhere. I mean, let's, let's be honest, I mean, maybe if you're going to like Atlanta or, you know, Los Angeles, but it's really hard to find direct flights. So, um, so Alicia and I flew to St. Louis, but we had to go through Dallas and have a flight over and then go up to St. Louis. And I'm telling you, when we got to Dallas, outside of the plane crashing, nothing else could have gone wrong. I mean, more wrong, I mean. I mean, it was a disaster. We were, like, really hungry, and, and we kind of get there late, so we quick rush over to the gate, and, and the last people are walking onto the plane, and we just make the next flight. And we're sitting on the plane, and, and the pilot comes on, and he says, hey, we have a mechanical problem on the plane, which is something you love to hear, right? And he said, so uh, they're going to come fix that, so sit tight. So about an hour later, he comes back on and says... We can't fix it. We're just gonna have to deboard the entire plane, grab your stuff, and I mean, it's not their fault. Something broke. Okay, I'm not blaming them. It, it happens better down here than 35,000 feet in the air, right? Um, so we get off. We we go back in. You know, we're waiting. Got something to eat. Get back on the next plane. Again, they're just having trouble getting out of the gate. Finally, we take the hour and five-minute flight up to St. Louis. And they can't find a gate to pull into. So now we're like sitting there for another 45 minutes. And, and this hour and five, 10 minute flight turns into like a whole five hour ordeal. And finally we get to St. Louis and it's like, holy smokes, thank you. I mean, it feels so good to be on the ground. But here's the thing. If, if you were to ask me, where are you going? Before we went, if you were to say, where are you going? would I say Dallas or would I say St. Louis? I would say I'm going to St. Louis by way of Dallas. Dallas is the resting place. It's the temporal resting place, the intermediate state until we arrive at St. Louis. And that's sort of the idea of the temporal heaven. When people ask about heaven, we say yes, it's going to be on this renewed earth. However, there's a layover, and that's the temporal heaven. But let's switch the illustration around a little bit. All right, let's let's make it a little more accurate. Let's say Alicia and I we we rent our home. We live off 210, and there's a lot of problems with the home. So uh, we rent through Invitation Homes. So they come in and they say, Hey, we're going to build you a whole new house. We're gonna we're just gonna um, Anyway, build this thing up, we're going to fix all the things, and and so Alicia and I fly directly to Dallas, we wait there, and then when we come back to Jacksonville, we find this renewed house. We find it upgraded, we find it more beautiful and, and just perfect in every single way, and that's the idea we have of the temporal heaven. So you end up living not in a different home, but in a radically improved version of your own home. And see, that's what the Bible promises: us. We will live with Christ and each other forever, not in the intermediate or the present heaven, but on a new earth where God will be at home with his people. So tonight we're looking at life in this present heaven. What is going on there right now? What is not happening there? What's going to happen unless the rapture takes place first? What's, what am I going to expect when I get to this temporal heaven? And then for the rest of the series, we're going to look at life on the new earth in Revelation 21. So um, if you look at Revelation chapter number 5, We're going to see a vision of what's taking place right now in the temporal heaven. So look at Revelation chapter number five, and I'll start reading in verse number nine. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. Now, that's pretty neat. Um, Have any of you ever been to, like, a real exciting football game? Um, (laughs) You're laughing at me, but uh, I remember the craziest game we ever went to was what? What am I going to say? I was going to say the Louisville game, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It was back in two thousand. 17? Uh, Clemson was making a run at the national title, and here comes Lamar Jackson and Louisville down into Death Valley. It's a Saturday night national ABC game. And Kirk Herbstreet, I didn't know it at the time, but he actually says on the air, if you listen to him, I have never heard a game like this. I mean... the way the stadium works, it's just really uh, sort of enclosed and, and I mean, it's so loud that at the first play of the game, Louisville just jumps off sides. Well, now it's going to get louder. So now everybody's just going crazy. Second play of the game, they jump off sides again. They can't hear anything. So now everybody is just screaming at the top of their lungs. So if you were to ask me to describe that scene at the stadium, I would say I saw tens of thousands of people. I would say they were shouting with emotion. I would say they were raising their hands and cheering on the 53 players. There was enthusiasm. There was unity among the Clemson fans and who we were praising. I would use exclamation point, exclamation point, and exclamation point. And when you start to read what's happening around the throne of God, if you notice in verse number 12, and if you circle in your Bible, circle where it says, saying with a loud voice. Note that word loud. It's translated in the Bible loud 33 times, but it's translated great 150 times. And if you look up that word, Here's the definition. It says it's used of intensity and its degrees with great effort, of the affections and motions of the mind, of natural events powerly affecting the senses, violent, mighty, strong. They're not just...... Uh, no, they are shouting. It's loud. It's intense. It's more like a football game. But then notice, and this is really neat, I learned this recently, if you look at verse number 11, do any of you have anything different where it says myriads of myriads of people? Do any of you have anything different in, in a different translation? 10,000, 10, okay, 10,000, that's what myriads means in mine, but 10,000 is the exact translation of the word. Do you know what the highest number in Koine Greek at this time? 10,000. Now think about that. 10,000 was the highest number in the Greek language. You know what John's doing? He's seen a vision of this. And he says, I'm going to take the highest number in the Greek language, and I'm going to times it by the highest number in the Greek language. And, and that's what I saw. Think about that. There were so many creatures and and saints and angels shouting and praising God. He says, you can't even number it. It's more than you can even count. And that's what's taking place around the throne of God. Think about that atmosphere. It's pretty neat. I'll tell you, it, it, it makes me really excited. And we can learn a great deal about the intermediate heaven from these verses. But also, I want us to look ahead at chapter number 6 in verses 9 through 11. And I want us to see several observations about what is taking place in the intermediate heaven just from these verses. Now, there's, there's verses all throughout Revelation, but, but just from these, we can learn quite a bit. So, notice what it says Uh, Revelation 6 and verse number 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. There it is again. The same word, loud, used, around the throne in chapter 5 is the same word here. It's intense. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Uh, I'd love to take credit for these observations, but uh, these actually come from uh, Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven. And he's basing this on what we learned from this right here. So again, I'd love to take credit, but... but um, I'm going to use his observations and then sort of add commentary on that. So what do we learn from just these three verses about what's taking place in the intermediate heaven? Number one, these people in heaven are the same ones killed for Christ here on earth. They're the same ones killed for Christ while on earth. Verse number nine. This demonstrates, just keep going a little bit, sorry, a couple more, yeah, right there. Um, This demonstrates a continuity between our identity on earth and our identity in heaven. The martyr's personal history extends directly back on their lives on earth. See, those in the intermediate heaven, they're not different people, they're the same people relocated. The Bible says righteous men made perfect. Number two, we learn people in heaven will be remembered for their lives here on earth. Notice, these were known and identified as one slain. What? Because of the testimony they had maintained. They're remembered. Number three, it says they called out in verse number 10. This means they're able to express themselves audibly. It could also suggest they exist in physical form since vocal cords and other tangible means to express themselves. Number four, people in the intermediate heaven can raise their voices in verse number 10. This indicates that they are rational, they're emotional, communicative, and even passionate beings like those here on earth. Number five, they called out in a loud voice And notice, not loud voices. Them speaking in one voice indicates that heaven is a place of unity. It's a place of shared perspective. Number six, they ask God to intervene on earth and to act on their behalf. Notice how long until you judge the inhabitants of earth and avenge our blood. Let's think about this for a second. Let's let's pause right here. They remember who murdered them, and they ain't happy. In fact, when you look at the wordage used here, where it says in verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, like we saw in chapter 5, verse 12, it's a word used of intensity, with great effort, They remember those who murdered them, and they are crying out for God to avenge them. A simple reading of this verse teaches us they are not happy about it. And who's to blame them? They're crying out with frustration for God to seek vengeance against those who executed them. Do you know the voice of the martyrs? Have any of you... uh... Any of you i to keep up with this? Okay. They estimate, and you can look this up, that more than 150,000 people in our world die for Christ every single year. Now, that's hard for us to, to understand here in the United States. I mean, we turn on the TV and they make fun of Christianity and we think we're being persecuted. We're, we're not. Come on. I mean, we might get ridiculed. But there are people all over the world that are dying. And the voice of the martyrs says an average of more than 400 per day die for the name of Jesus. And you know what's neat about this? God knows the names of every single one of them. Every one of them. He knows exactly how many martyrs there will be, and he's prepared to return and set up his kingdom when the final martyr dies. And once again, we see a major difference between the temporal heaven and the eternal heaven in Revelation 21. And I want you to see this. Flip over to Revelation chapter number 20. Because I think sometimes there's, there's a little bit of confusion on... Um, When God will wipe away our tears. Because, you know, often we say um, everybody is just perfectly happy and at perfect peace in heaven. And then you look at this chapter 6 and you're like, yo, I don't think everybody is too happy right now in in perfect peace. So so how do we um, reconcile this? Well, in chapter number twenty and verse number eleven, we read about the great white throne judgment. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the Book of Life, and the dead were judged But then notice, after this judgment takes place, and after God removes sin from this world, and all evil is gone, notice then, in Revelation 21, the eternal heaven comes down, and then what does it say in verse 4? It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what brings perfect peace? It's not not the presence of heaven. It's the removal of sin and wickedness. Because as long as sin and wickedness take place, there can be no perfect peace. Now, let me me emphasize this. Um, You know, don't go too far with this. Sometimes at a funeral, someone will say, you know, that the departed one is in a place of, you know, Perfect, P. You know, don't run up to him after the service and be like, "Well, actually, that takes place in <laughs> Revelation 21." You know, understand what I'm saying, okay? But here, um, it's only then that that takes place. Um, have you ever, um, have you ever read the story? It's called the story, and and it sort of, um, gives the Bible different chapters and and kind of arranges it in a really neat way, and. When you start to read that and you look at this perspective, you find that the Bible has four chapters in it. Number one is what? Creation. Number two is the fall. In Genesis chapter number three. Then what happens after Adam and Eve sin? We see the third chapter open up and this is restoration. Some call it rescue. It's the process throughout the Bible where God is redeeming mankind in his creation back to himself, through Jesus Christ. However, the final chapter doesn't take place until Revelation 21, and we call that glorification, where we live on this new earth forever with God. And what the Bible is teaching is that during this restoration process, where God is redeeming us back to himself, sin still exists. People still reject God. There's still wickedness here on this earth. And it's not till after the great white throne judgment when all our tears are wiped away because God has finally, perfectly, and once for all, defeated sin. Um, I love this illustration. Um, uh, any uh, World War II buffs? Are you really? Okay. Um, interesting, um... June 6, 1944 is what? PJ. Yeah, it's where we showed up in the beaches of Normandy and, and brave soldiers went in there. I, I, still, um, I still cringe when I think about, what, what was that movie with Tom Hanks? Um, oh my goodness, when they showed up on that beach, it just makes it so real. I mean, I, holy smokes. And see, if you go back and look, Uh, According to a lot of history buffs, everybody knew that if the United States could get a beachhead in Europe, they would win the war. Because at that point, it was just a matter of time before they would march across Europe and finally win World War II. Now, how long did it take? How long did it take from D-Day? From D-Day to V-E-Day. Remember? Yeah, yeah. It was actually uh, nine months to be exact. Yeah, good. Yeah, nine months from D-Day to V-E-Day when the war ended. And I've heard several people say this, that do you know more men died during that nine month period than at any other nine month period in our nation's history? A lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people in this world died. See, here's the idea. On D Day, the war was won. Everybody in the world knew that. On VE Day, the war was done. But see, there was still this nine month period where there were battles, where they were fighting. But everybody knew they were fighting a war that was won. And can I tell you something? When Jesus Christ came and died on that cross, the war was won. It was won. Satan knows that. And when Jesus comes again and opens the Lamb's book of life and he defeats sin and death, the war will be done. But see, we're living in this intermediate state. We're living in this time period where we win some battles and we lose some battles, where people get sick, people die, people are martyred. But see, there's coming a day when the war will be done. And at that point, there will be perfect peace forever and ever. Number seven, those in heaven are free to ask God questions. I love this, which means they have an audience with God. It also means they need to learn. In heaven, people desire understanding and pursue it. If they knew everything, they wouldn't ask God questions. Number eight, people in the intermediate heaven know what is happening on earth in verse number 10. The martyrs know enough to realize that those who killed them have not yet been judged. Number nine, heaven dwellers have a deep concern for justice and retribution in verse 10. See, when we go to heaven, someone said we won't adopt a passive disinterest in what happens on earth. On the contrary, our concerns will be more passionate and our thirst for greater justice. See, neither God nor we will be satisfied until his enemies are judged. Our bodies are raised and sin is defeated. Number 10, the martyrs clearly remember their lives on earth in verse number 10. They even remember that they were murdered. And if martyrs remember their death, there's no reason to believe that they don't remember other aspects of their earthly lives. In fact, I think you could make a greater argument that we'll remember more in heaven than we do here on this earth. Uh, it was funny. We were eating supper earlier, and Lydia, um, she's uh, 12, and she goes, Hey, you remember that time where somebody stole my sandwich at school, and, and uh, I had to, like, buy lunch? I was like, What? She's like, Yeah, it was in first grade. I'm like, You don't remember that. Like, What, what are you talking? What? First grade? And she's like, Oh, yeah, I remember. You know, you think about that our memory is so limited but it appears that in heaven our minds will be even more illuminated our memory even greater in fact Luke 16 25 write that down teaches that those in heaven are comforted who are endured bad things on earth comfort implies memory of what happened let me emphasize this after we die we will give an account and given our improved minds, our memory should be more, not less concerning. Revelation 14, 13 says, for their deeds, follow them. Number 11, the martyrs in heaven pray for judgment on their persecutors and are still, that are still working to hurt others. They are acting in solidarity and interceding for suffering saints on earth. This suggests that people in the intermediate heaven right now are praying for those here on earth. Think about this, if prayer is simply talking to God, then presumably we would pray more in heaven than we do on this earth, right? Not less. And if saints do possess an awareness of what transpires on earth, which we'll get to in a few minutes, then it would seem strange not to intercede in prayer. And if we assume that heaven is a place of ignorance, then we will naturally assume that people don't pray for those on earth. However, if we believe, like we see here, that heaven is aware to some degree about the events taking place on earth, and they talk to God, then we can naturally conclude that they do pray for those on earth. See, the burden of proof falls on those who would argue that people don't pray in heaven for those on earth. Where is that in the Bible? See, that's where the burden of proof is. If you can prove to me that they don't pray, but no, we see that they intercede. Number 12, those in heaven see God's attributes. Notice they say sovereign, he's holy, he's true. And it makes his judgment of sin more understandable. Number 13, those in heaven are distinct individuals. Did you notice in verse number 11, it says each of them was given a white robe. Each of them, every single one of them. Number 14, the the martyrs wearing these white robes suggest the possibility of actual physical forms. We could assume that disembodied spirits don't wear robes. But what John's writing this, and he can see the martyrs. He can see the white robes, which may indicate they have physical forms. Number 15, I love this. God answers their question in verse 11. God answers their question, indicating the communication process in heaven. Again, we see We don't know everything in the intermediate heaven. That's why we have questions. And here the martyrs knew more after asking God than they did before they asked. Number 16, God promises to fulfill the martyr's request, but says they'll have to wait a little longer. Which shows that those in heaven are living in anticipation for what's to follow? For the day will there be no more suffering on the new earth. Number 17, there is time in the intermediate heaven in verses 10 through 11. The white robe martyrs ask God a time-dependent question. How long, sovereign Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? They are aware of time's passing and they're eager for the coming day of the Lord's judgment and notice god tells them they must what wait a little longer until certain events transpire on the earth waiting requires the passing of time and then finally number 18 the people of god in heaven have a strong connection with those on earth notice how verse 11 ends it says fellow servants and brothers ephesians 3 15 says from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. See, there's not a wall of separation within the bride of Christ. We are, we are one family. And whether you have family members in the body of Christ that are in heaven or here on this earth, we're still one family. And if you were to die tonight and go to heaven you would still be part of the family of believers that exist here on earth. These verses demonstrate a vile connection, vital connection between the events and people in heaven and the events and people on earth. So that begs the uh, final question. And I know this is a a very sensitive uh, subject. And the question is, can loved ones in heaven look down on me. And understand, when we get to the end of this, there is not going to be a clear-cut answer. But we can find some observations in the Bible. I mean, after all, how often have we thought, hey, such and such, they're looking down at me and they're smiling. And the question in the Bible is, do we see that taking place? Um, I remember my wife and I... um, we had a miscarriage, I think, in 2017, and sometimes we we sort of think about um, the child that would have been. I wonder if if that child in the intermediate heaven can see his or her brother and, and sisters growing up, and, and um, you know, sometimes we, we think about that, but I want to give you a, a few arguments both ways, all right, and then... I don't want to give you my opinion, I just want to give you some arguments against and some arguments for, and really for us to to think about this. Um, Number one is Lazarus and the rich man, all right? And we're going to see a a few verses that, that are very popular when it comes to this. Verse 16 speaks of the rich man asking someone to go to his family to warn them about their impending doom. Luke 16, 27 says, and he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that they may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And, and there's this idea that Lazarus, uh, or the rich man, was looking at his brothers and watching them. However, his request here is not necessarily based on him seeing them, but rather upon his lifetime and his recollection of his family's lack of spiritual life, and not necessarily him observing earthly events after he died. Number two is the cloud of witnesses, and we hear this a lot. uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number one that says, therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, so many times we interpret this to mean that our departed loved ones watch us like spectators in a stadium, seeing our every move and cheering us on. However, there's, there seems to be um, a lot that would go against that view. And teach that the witnesses are those who witness Jesus Christ. And I I want to read what John MacArthur says about this because it's really good. John MacArthur wrote, The witnesses in that verse are not modern day loved ones, but the faithful saints in Hebrews 11, who live victorious lives by trusting God those saints are witnesses to us because their lives testify about the value of trusting god no matter what hardships we face they are active witnesses who speak to us by their example not passive witnesses who watch us with their eyes and then if you were to go on hebrews 12 2 says looking to jesus not the saints looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of father, consider him, again verse three, not the saints, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. What is the writer of Hebrews telling us? He's saying, look to Jesus, consider Jesus, pray to Jesus. We are to run the race because we live in the presence of Jesus Christ. But this third one is, might be something that, that you've never seen before, and it's called the blessing of Josiah. Um, I don't know if you've ever read about King Josiah in the Old Testament, but he was a very good king who lived for the Lord. And here's what God told him in Second Chronicles 34, verse number 26. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and his inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And then here it is. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. It was a blessing that Josiah would not be looking upon the sin and the wickedness And what is taking place. That is the blessing for Josiah. The blessing from this verse for him indicates that he would not see, he would not witness the depravity of those on earth. However, I would argue the other side here. And I would argue that those in heaven to some degree, they might not see every single event that takes place here on earth. But we do have to recognize that there is an awareness of heaven, of the events that transpire here on earth. And I want us to look at a few of these. Number one, the testimony of the martyrs. We just read this in Revelation 6. The martyrs in heaven know that God hasn't yet brought judgment on their persecutors. It seems evident that that those, that they at least can see what is happening on earth to some degree. Number 2 is the destruction of Babylon. Revelation 18:20 says, "Rejoice over her fate, O heaven, and people of God, and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her for your sake." Notice when Babylon is brought down, an angel in heaven refers to the events happening on earth and speaks to the people in heaven about them. Think about that. Think about that for a second. He tells the people in heaven what is happening on earth. So therefore, the inhabitants of heaven have an awareness. Number three is the praise for judgment. Revelation 19.1 says, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. See, what are heaven's inhabitants doing there? They're showing praise for God for the specific judgment that has just taken place on earth. Again, the saints in heaven are clearly observing what is happening on earth. See, those on earth may be ignorant of the events in heaven to some degree, but those in heaven are not ignorant of the events on earth. Number four, think about the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe uh, you've never thought about it from this view. In in Luke 9.30 it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem uh, I love the Mount of Transfiguration it's so fascinating that that Moses and Elijah appear and begin talking to Jesus they were glorious to see and they were speaking to Jesus about his Exodus or Exodus from this world which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem when they called from heaven to the Transfiguration on earth notice Moses and Elijah they were completely aware of what was currently happening on this earth. When they came here on the mount, they were already aware of what was taking place, and they were talking with Jesus. And by the way, they had a better grasp of what was taking place on earth than the disciples. Think about that. And then finally, number five, and this is my favorite, the joy over repentant sinners. I love Luke 15, 10. It says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice, you ever notice this? It doesn't say of rejoicing by the angels, but notice it says in the presence of angels. So who's doing the rejoicing? The saints, it's the church of God. They're rejoicing over conversions happening on earth, which means they are obviously aware of what is taking place and not generally, but rather specifically down to the details of the specific individuals who are being saved. Isn't that neat? That's exciting. So what can we conclude from all of this, and and let's bring it home, let's let's end it here. What can we learn from all of this? Uh, Number one, ultimately, that although our loved ones may not see every detail of our lives, we can clearly see that they possess an awareness of what is taking place on earth. We don't know to what extent, we don't know exact details, but we've clearly seen that people in the intermediate heaven are aware, many times specifically, of events happening on earth. Number two, if God grants saints in heaven to see the suffering and misery as well as the good on earth, we can be sure that we will see it not with our old eyes, not with our imperfect eyes, not with our imperfect minds. Not with our imperfect hearts. But rather, we'll see it because what? We'll see it because the Bible says in Hebrews 12.23 that, that they have been perfected in heaven. They will assess everything in a more spiritual way. Um, I love this by Billy Graham. This is really good. You know, somebody went up to Billy Graham. And I just want to read this for you. Uh, This is so good. Someone asked him, do you think people who've died and gone on to heaven can look down and see what's going on in our lives? My mother and I had a rocky relationship, and frankly, it makes me nervous to think she's still trying to ruin my life. Now listen to this response. Billy answered, don't worry. The only way your mother can keep running your life is if you let your memories of her control you. She is no longer has any power to influence your life, not unless you let your resentment or anger or whatever emotions you have left over from the past to keep their hold on you. The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions about heaven. Although some Bible students believe that those who've already entered heaven can see what happens on earth. Then he says this, but listen, your mother is no longer the same person she once was. On this earth she was imperfect and flawed as we all are. But in heaven all of those imperfections are stripped away and we will be like Christ 1 John 3.2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then finally, the, the last thing we conclude from all this is we should take caution not to spend too much time thinking about the saints above that we are tempted to interact with them the way the Roman Catholic Church does when they pray to Mary. And I think this is very dangerous for the health of our faith. And I fear it's led many, millions in our world to pray to saints rather than pray to God. See, the book of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, because of Christ, draw near to the throne of grace, not to Mary, not to the saints, but to Christ, that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Who is the one mediator between God and man? It's Jesus. There is no other mediator. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And the Bible never encourages us to pray to the saints or to Mary as mediators on our behalf. So the bottom line is we should focus on the central realities of the New Testament, which are perfect. Um Solomon said at the end of his life in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, our goal is not to ultimately please our loved ones who have died. Our goal is to please who? God our Father. It's His approval that we desire. It's His love that we need. And therefore, we make it our goal to worship Jesus Christ. So let's, uh, let's pray together here. Father, uh, we, um, we are blown away when we look at, at these events in, in not only the temporal heaven, but also the new earth. Father, we, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to this earth to rescue us, Lord. And, Father, we look forward to the day where you will wipe wickedness and sin off the face of the earth. But, Father, we know we're in this stage where we fight battles, where we win some and we lose some. But, God, we ask for your help. Our failures are just an indication of how much we truly need you. I pray that our goal will be only to please you. Um, we love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Any questions? Any uh, anything think you disagree with? <laughs> <I didn't win>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.